Well, welcome everyone. Thank you for being here. As uh, some of you may know, my name's Brian, and I'm the pastor of uh, Global Outreach here at Golden Hills, and very glad that you're here. If you are new to Golden Hills, I can assure you that you're sat by a friendly person or persons. So if there's anything you'd like to know, please don't be afraid to ask the person that sat next to you on the pew. And um, for those who are joining us from wherever you happen to be in the world this day, we thank you that you can be a part of this. We're glad that you can join us. It became very clear earlier on um, this year when Dave, well, sorry, when Phil and I had a conversation about his sermon series and my somehow dovetailing in with that. And clearly God laid a very similar message on our hearts. So the reason why the set has not changed is to reflect the, the fact that we're living for God in our everyday. And it's in the everyday that he is glorified. And so um, we're very glad that you're here. Isn't it interesting when we look at our own children or even remember our own childhood memories, how if we see a picture in a comic or a film on TV, um, children are compelled to go off and find all the bits and pieces they can to try and make the very thing that inspired them. Um, was it only me that thought that I could make aeroplanes out of branches and bits of string and you know, castles out of cardboard? Is, was it only me or did you have a similar experience? The point is, is that many of us um, like to see a vision, have an idea that kind of energizes us and children are wonderful at that. And even for us as rational thinking adults, how many of us have been inspired by a, a magazine or a TV series to go off and beautify our gardens or redecorate our homes? And maybe some of you more ambitious people have even attempted to build something. The point is, is that um, vision and purpose is very important to us. God has given us that need to have vision and purpose. And um, Take a meal. Um, I'm no cook, but my wife is a great cook, and she's able to imagine how something could taste by, even by looking at a picture, and she goes off and buys all the ingredients, and typically in our household, I'm the one who does the slicing, dicing, shredding. Fellas, you know what that looks like, don't you? But miraculously, she follows the ingredients, the, receipt, the recipe to the, to the letter, and what emerges from the oven, do you call it an oven? Yes, you do. <laughs> what emerges from the oven is something that closely resembles and tastes like the very thing that, you know, energized her in the first place. So the point is, as Scripture tells us in Proverbs, the truth is that where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint. And a chap called Chambers puts it eloquently like this. When once we lose sight of God, we begin to be reckless. We cast off certain restraints. We cast off praying. We cast off the vision of God in the little things. And we begin to act on our own initiative. If we're eating what we have out of our own hands, doing things on our own initiative, without expecting God to come in, we are on a downward path. We have lost a vision. Is our attitude today 
that which springs from our own vision of God? Are we expecting God to do greater things today than he's ever done? Is there a freshness and a vigor in our outlook? These are important questions that Chalmers asks us to ask ourselves. The point is, a life that is redeemed by Christ and surrendered in obedience to a loving God is clearly motivated by a divine vision and purpose that brings joy in the process of bringing Him glory. Today, through the reading of a familiar passage, I trust that Jesus will sharpen our vision of a kingdom focus and encourage us in our union life with Him. Let's read together Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. Luke 9, 51 to 62. As the time approached for Him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for Him, but the people there did not welcome Him because He was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were going along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of God, sorry, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words, the truth of your words that's recorded in scriptures for us to read today. Lord, just as you intended for those listeners, those that you are passionate about, will you, we pray, speak to us through the work of your Holy Spirit, that despite my inadequacies, that we would hear your voice today and leave this place enthused for you afresh. Bless our time together, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a very familiar passage, isn't it? And I'm sure many of you have read it many, many times. And, you know, when we read things often, we sometimes miss the first meaning. But, you know what, we probably read this and think that by putting your hands to the plow in particular, um, you just, that means just keep going be like a forest gump, you know, just keep going, doing that thing in forward motion until such times as you feel you've had enough. Um, I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. There's a really a much bigger picture here that I'm trusting we'll be able to unpack. Before that, let's take a closer look at the context of the verses. In Luke 9, 51, 
As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was before him. Betrayal, passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. In verses 52 to 56, we see how as Jerusalem was looming up, Jesus continued to teach and deal with the heart issues of those that were journeying with him. The urgency to impart spiritual truth was rising as his death and resurrection was coming into view. Jesus rebuked James and John for their aggressive attitude towards the Samaritans. This stemmed from a cultural hatred for them. Jesus' reply was that of mercy. The overarching theme of verses 57 to 62 is Jesus' demand for his disciples to be committed to his kingdom purposes. In these verses, Jesus is insisting that following him is not a matter of imitating him, but obediently surrendering to his will and the perfect will of his Father. Here we see Jesus pairing mercy with an astonishing call to obedience that he himself would exemplify on the cross. In verses 57 and 58, Jesus states that times of hardship and discomfort will accompany obedience. But through these experiences will come an understanding that the world is not our home. Jesus is clearly saying that his rewards far outvalue anything we lose by following him, and that our life in him makes us citizens of heaven and not of this earth, and the life of him within us roots us in a kingdom perspective. From Christ's perspective, and as Phil has been reminding us, our earthly activity only has true value if we have an eternal perspective and live for his glory here on earth. Jesus taught us to pray towards this end. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In verses 59 to 61, Jesus added urgency to mercy and commitment. It's clear that the man's father was not dead or close to death. The would-be disciple was asking permission to delay following Jesus until his father had died and had been buried, after which he was then absolved of responsibility. It seems that this man had no concept of the urgency of the task to which Jesus was calling him. Jesus was calling him to be a part of the salvation and discipleship of others. This speaks to us too. If we're truly on the road with Jesus, our life in him will be filled with an intense sense of urgency for the salvation of others. We have the words of life to those who are perishing and the Spirit of Christ within us to guide us in the discipleship of those 
that he's drawing to himself. Luke 9:62 is the verse I'd really like us to focus on. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, there's a cultural and historical context behind what Jesus was saying. But there's a reason why he used plowing as an example to get to the heart of the matter. However, from today's perspective, when we think of plowing, we think of it in other terms. We tend to think if we put our hands to the plow, and this is what Jesus was saying, and take our eyes off what's happening in front, we're likely to mess things up. We may even think that Jesus is saying if we look behind to see what a good job we're doing, that pride is an issue, which of course it can be. Jesus may have also been saying it's unproductive to live in the past and that we should be looking to the future. Of course, there's truth in this. However, I believe we'll understand more of what Jesus was saying if we look at a much bigger picture. Jesus was referring to a task that the society in which he lived understood. Putting one's hand to the plow not only meant committing to the task in hand, but to the whole process that's necessary to sustain and perpetuate life. It seems that Jesus knew the context in which the men lived, and so in order to communicate a truth, he drew from an example of their community. We need to remember that Jesus lived and walked among them. Jesus could have been the very carpenter that made a plow for one of those guys. He may have been the very person that made the implements and the utensils that they used. Jesus understood intimately how the community worked, and particularly the agricultural community. I grew up on a farm, and I immediately relate to this bigger picture. Putting your hands to the plow was actually a commitment to an engagement which would lead to the production of a crop and then bread on the table. That's the bigger picture. Plowing today is very different, isn't it, to the days of Jesus' time, not using great big tractors and, and, and equipment such as we see in our area. But in Jesus' time, it is likely to have been a very sweaty, difficult, laborious job. While a man or a farmer struggled to control a, a pair of oxen with a, with a sharp stick and bearing down with the other hand, trying to keep the steel point of the plow in the ground, looking behind when you're trying to do so much is likely to be foolhardy. We can see that by looking at these pictures. But of course, what is worse than not plowing what, sorry, what's worse than looking back is not plowing at all. Without plowing, as we know, there's no sowing. Without sowing, there's new life. Without new life, there's no growth. Without growth, there's no crop. Get the picture. Without crop, there's no harvest. Without harvest, there's nothing to eat. Without eating, there is death. A farmer sets about the task of plowing, 
because of the responsibilities and obligations that he has to his family and his community. The outcome of their efforts, the farmer's efforts, harmonize with the miracles of nature to perpetuate life in the way that God intended and in a way that brings glory to him. This closely reflects the life and vitality that flows from those who are living with Jesus in their hearts. Jesus works in us, directs our actions, and through the miraculous intervention of God, new life emerges that brings glory to him. What happens, though, if we compromise our union life with Christ and stop putting our hands to the plow? Some of you may be aware that Anna and I and our family spent a number of years in Africa. For part of that time, we were in uh, the country of Chad that you've heard a lot about. And we got to learn that in 1999, a, an alleged ambassador of the Lord, servant of the Lord, call you what you will, had unfortunately told a whole community of villages in the south that Jesus was coming at the turn of the millennium. On the last day of 1999, Jesus would come. Because he was so sure of this and because he had convinced all these villagers this was going to be the case, they stopped plowing. They stopped sowing. And they lived off the residue of the last harvest to the point of that New Year's Eve when they expected Jesus to come. Well, we know, don't we, that Jesus has not yet come. But that caused a spiritual crisis and a humanitarian crisis in that area. The sad thing is, it discredited the witness of Christ in that area and brought shame upon the church. That's what happens when we don't put the hand to the plow. This sad example helps us to understand the dangers, the dangers of spiritual apathy by being spiritually and physically lazy, by lacking discernment, by living off the fruits of the past and failing to step up to the strenuous responsibilities of today, by denying the life of Christ in us, we too will fail, fall, and dishonor God. As we've been learning through Pastor Phil, there is good reason why God invented work why scriptures talk a lot about it and about the consequences of poor judgment and lack of responsibility. Proverbs clearly says, one who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. I don't think any of us want to be brother to him that destroys. And yet sometimes our laziness can have that very same effect. Let's get back now to the farming picture. As we've seen, in Jesus' time, plowing involved the scratching up the surface. And this was only possible after the rain had softened the ground. Attempting to plow too soon would likely result in a broken plow and physical exhaustion. Waiting too long to plow would mean missing the last rains. Plowing and sowing are solitary tasks requiring commitment and stamina, 
born out of a sense of responsibility for the lives that would be sustained by the harvest. After the harvest, as we all know, came thrash, threshing and then careful storage of the grain, ready for use during the coming year. Harvesting was labor-intensive and it would have involved many people from the community. They took an interest in the harvest season. In all of this, as if we need reminding, it's important to remember that the wonder of sprouting new life, the nutrients, the rain and the sun that enables growth are all miracles of God that we take for granted. Psalm 65 reminds us, you care for the land and water it, you enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for you have so ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your casts overflow with abundance. Through this picture of farming, we can see a wonderful relationship between man and his efforts working in unison with God's purpose and his miraculous activities. Without an end goal in mind and our working in harmony with God's purposes, nothing is sown, nothing is grown, and therefore nothing of faithfulness, gratitude, and amazement will miraculously materialize before us that will bring glory to God. God delights in our active participation with him, and he invites us to be part of his story, the story of his glory. How often, though, do we exclude ourselves from being a part of that story by finding rational excuses? It's possible the excuse used by the man in Luke not to follow Jesus was based on a familiar passage in Kings, which records how, as Elisha was plowing, Elijah threw his cloak over him to signify his call to discipleship. Elisha accepted to go with Elijah on the condition that he could first kiss his mother and his father goodbye. He begged for this, and Elijah permitted him to go. Undoubtedly, the man in Luke knew this story and probably felt he had a legitimate reason for not immediately following Jesus. However, Jesus' response was intended to orientate the man towards a life and obedience and engagement with God at work. Although we don't know what happened to him, Jesus was helping him to understand that he had a preference for putting human reason in the way of God's purposes. When Jesus calls to serve, a disciple must not put conditions to his commitment. When Jesus calls, he calls and we respond. Does this sound a little how we can be? I know I found myself doing this legitimizing our excuses rather than moving forward together in faith with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Submission to Christ means having confidence in his sovereignty 
in all circumstances, an absolute trust in the perfect love of God that casts away all fear. By contrast, if we're not discerning and prayerful, what starts out as faithful obedience can become entrenchment, doing the same things over and over again, expending energy in good causes, but not moving on to new things and allowing God through the miraculous to generate new life and vitality. We can become like the leaders of Ephraim and Judah, who God needed to address through the prophet Isaiah. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continuously? Does he keep on breaking up, the, up and working the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter come in? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over come in. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and come in with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread. So one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. This also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. This chapter in Isaiah is very different to the chapters before it and after it. It seems to point to the fact that the engagement of God's people with his purpose had become entrenched in repetition and that they were not moving forward in fruitfulness. How often can this become the case for us when we find ourselves doing what we've always done? As good and as safe as this may seem to us, we must ask, ask ourselves, is God asking us to move on to other things? As the adage says, if we keep doing what we've always done, the results are likely to be the same. Do these verses hold truth for you? They have done for Anna and I over the years. What are some of the ways that we may be fruitlessly going over old ground in our relationships, in our ministries? Is it time for us to move forward in the new things of God? Is there anything that I'm afraid to do? Or do I have things that I'm entrenched in? The significance of putting one's hand to the plow is more profound than when we realize. And believe it or not, there's more. We understand the role of the farmer when we can see how knowledge and discernment is connected with hard work. We also recognize the miraculous qualities of God at work to causing the crops to germinate and for, for the harvests to come in. But in this whole equation, do we overlook the role of the noble oxen who, when nurtured, provide the motive power necessary to get the job done from plowing to carting, to threshing of corn. The oxen were a vital part of the process. A farmer's relationship with his tractive power is critical. Oxen 
as we know, are living and breathing creatures. And if they're not cared for, the farmer and those depending on him will suffer dire consequences. No matter how physically strong, a farmer simply does not have the ability to pull a plow on his own. Man wasn't designed by God to play that role. God gave him all, the, all he needs to harness the resources to make it happen. How true is this with our relationship with God through Jesus? It's only Jesus who can provide the motive power for the task before us. And this can only happen if we care about our relationship with him. The role we play in God's purposes for our lives is in unison with him, his spirit, and the work of Christ being expressed through us. There's nothing more inexplicably humbling than experiencing Christ at work in and through us. This is something that Paul understood. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Not human effort for God, but Christ's power at work in us. He knows what he's doing and what he wants to achieve through each one of us. How does this relate to the Great Commission? To make disciples that is the very heart of Jesus' purposes for us all. God has revealed to us a vision that we can take to heart. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that none could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. That's the vision that God has given each one of us of what will play out. Regretfully we, can lose, regretfully, we can lose sight of this. We can become inoculated by public opinion. David Brickner, the executive director of Jews for Jesus, puts it like this. Christians who believe that gospel proclamation is no longer necessary may be in a bubble of their own. They may be so accustomed to seeing all the lost around them they've lost touched with the tragedy of their lostness, or they may be so acclimated to God's grace, they have lost the wonder over what Christ has done for us. It's said that out of 648 million evangelical Christians, 70% have never been told about the 1.6 billion unevangelized peoples of the world. And it's said that 67% of all humans from AD 30 to the present day have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we send people and teams to places like Thailand. I'm learning that despite terrible violence and persecution, God is at work in the world, despite what we hear through the media. 
The Christian population in Sudan has grown from 1.6 million in 1990 to more than 11 million Christians today. Praise God. Do you know that in Nepal, Nepal is the home of the fastest growing Christian church in Asia. In 1951, there were five known believers. But today, there are an estimated one million believers. God is at work. Get this. In 1949, when China closed its doors to the world, there were only about half a million baptized Christians out of a population of 450 million. Today, that number has grown to well over 100 million baptized Christians in China. That number is set to double, is expected to double in the next six and a half years. It's said that the influence of Christianity is going to overspill into all the neighboring countries. In a newspaper article a few years ago, there was stated in an Asian newspaper that the threat to the world was Islam. They said it isn't. The threat to the world is the spread of Christianity from China. God is at work. We believe, do we not, in miraculous disciple-making movements. That's why we're engaged in the Great Commission with Jesus. We know that as we reach the ends of the earth and through our partnerships in Chad, in Senegal, in North Africa and elsewhere, we're seeing the prelude to a movement of God. We are seeing it. I'm not sure if I can express it enough, but we are seeing first believers of unreached people groups coming to know Christ through the miraculous intervention of God at work. Additionally, as we look at our relationships with people in our Samaria, the people of a different culture living within our country, I can tell you that God is calling people from other sects and from Islam to Christ. Some of them are actually our brothers and sisters worshiping with us today. God is at work among all peoples. God is at work in our Judea, the people of a similar culture living around us. You only have to hear testimony of what he's doing through the Royal Family Kids Camp, through San Francisco City Impact, through Child Evangelism Fellowship, Options for Women, and others with whom we are partnered. God is influencing and transforming lives by the gospel. This is most certainly the case in our Jerusalem. The Lord is doing things through many of our engagements of which you are a part. In response to prayer and through a commitment to building authentic relationships, we are seeing the Spirit of God at work in our midst. God is bringing life and vitality to all generations. We would be astounded if we could capture a detailed picture of what God is doing in our times and our midst. Do not listen to media. More and more people are alive and coming to life in Christ and living for Him in their everyday. Glory and praise is being increasingly born out of His people, out of you, who are living for Jesus and allowing Him to have expression through you in your everyday. Eugenia Price said, if Christ lives in us, you and I, all that we are, we will leave glorious marks 
on the lives we would touch, not because of our lovely character, but because of his. Chambers suggests that the greatest hindrance in our spiritual life is is that we look for big things to do. Jesus took a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. There are times when there's no thrill, just the common tasks. He says, routine is God's way of saving us between our times of inspiration. The men and women that the Lord invites to participate in his purposes are ordinary people like you and I, who are controlled by our devotion to him through the work of the Holy Spirit. Dear brothers and sisters, be encouraged in the truth. Although once a sinner, upon repentance and confession of sin, you have been forgiven and you are redeemed by Christ. You are a new creation. He lives in your heart to guide and empower you according to his good and perfect will. As you relate to your neighbors, as you relate to your colleagues, your family, your children, and your spouse. In Christ, we are fit for service in the kingdom of God. And he has given you gifts and abilities to be used for the extension of his kingdom. His vision and purposes are before you. There remains before us an unfinished task. Keep your heart surrendered to Christ and your hands on the plough for the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in all thankfulness, Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are a new creation in you. And in you we live and move and have our being. Help us to stand firm and live by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of our sinful nature. We know that your plans stand firm forever and the purposes of your heart through all generation. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Lord, we acknowledge there are times when we feel tired Restore and impart to us your strength that we might be fully awake to see your glory and majesty in our midst. Let us respond with confidence to your voice because you have spoken and make the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace our only aim. Help us to keep our hands fixed to the plow so that we might live out your purposes with Jesus with a praise for your glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.